Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to this week's special patrons only episode of The Dispatches. It is great to be back with you again after an unprecedented and totally unexpected week-long absence last week. As you are all well aware by now, well certainly if you read the the update post that I posted early last week, uh, I've had COVID and so I've spent this time recovering and I wasn't able to do my usual stuff last week as you might expect. I'm going to talk more about that um, particular experience later this week in the free-to-air episode. It's going to be dedicated entirely to talking about and sharing about my COVID experience and uh, some things I learnt along the way. One thing I will say though before I get to that later this week is I would highly recommend that anyone who gets COVID treats it as a 10-day minimum illness. I think for a whole lots of different reasons, I think we've been encouraged to think about this possibly in a shorter time frame, and I'm not sure that's particularly helpful to our psychology and, and what our expectations might be if we get COVID, regardless of whether we're vaccinated or unvaccinated and possibly a big part of that is the isolation period is seven days and so I think psychologically we think of it in those sorts of terms and other countries it's five days. Realistically though I think it's a a 10-day minimum experience. Uh, That's certainly what we saw in our family with everyone who got it and I include myself in this and I think if you start with that as your benchmark, your minimum benchmark, you say right it's 10 days minimum I think you're not particularly shocked. You don't try and overdo it as much, I don't think. And I also think you don't find yourself in that sort of very risky, I think, psychological place where you can very much fall into a trap of thinking, oh, right, I'm done now. I'll rush back out. I'll get back into things. And then you end up with a situation where the illness just drags on and the symptoms drag on. Or you find yourself in a a bit of a bleak place trying to figure out why why is this not over? I thought it should be over with by now. It's um, it's an interesting illness. Um, and I guess it's because of the fact that it's novel, it's new. And so our systems have got to learn things afresh, if you like. So um, it's been a while for me since I was a very young kid where I've had to deal with a virus that my body was foreign to my body. So, uh, so yeah, we'll talk more about that later this week. But that would be my one take-home point that I would I would encourage everyone to even begin thinking about now. So if you if you do manage to find yourself contracting COVID at some point, um, that definitely treat it like a ten day minimum uh, sort of illness. What that means for me is I'm I'm not actually really out of this until sort of Wednesday of this week. So yeah, that's that's how I'm viewing things. Anyway, more on that later this week. It is great to be back with you. A huge thank you to all of uh, the new patrons who have joined us since our previous episode. It is great to have you on board. Before we jump into today's topics of conversation, let me just highlight a couple of things that we've got coming up this week. Obviously, there's a free-to-air episode. We're back to our usual schedule this week, our free-to-air episode. And I'm going to be talking about my COVID experience and some things I've learned and what it was like being a person who's not vaccinated with COVID and uh, sharing a few of my thoughts about that sort of stuff for those who might be interested. I'm also currently organising a special panel discussion. I'm actually hoping to have... 
these on a regular basis throughout this year, uh, bringing together people in person to have more lengthy conversations about specific issues. And there's lots of different issues that I'd like to talk about with different people, but having a panel conversation I think is a great way to begin or to enter into a dialogue about um, things that really matter. And so I'm, I'm currently the first cab off the rank. I'm going to organise a special conversation between a couple of different clergy members, so Protestant and Catholic, and myself and another layman. Uh, and I, I want to talk about, well, where to from here? Now that the vaccine segregation is coming to an end, we, we need to have a conversation about the impact of this on the church and a, a more of a wide-ranging, in-depth kind of conversation. So I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking this is going to be a two-parter, probably an hour each part, and a detailed conversation with um, the four of us in this panel setting in a room together just talking about it, what the implications are, what it might mean for the church going forward and those kinds of things because we did buy into vaccine segregation and there's some pretty big issues there. So I will let you know more as that develops. Hopefully we can record that in the next couple of weeks and then we'll make it available as a part one and then a part two for you to be able to uh, tune into. Alrighty, today's topics of conversation, there's quite a bit to talk about. Um, Really what I want to do is that the main topic is the end of the vaccine segregation and mandates which are coming up on April the 4th. So I want to I want to sort of unpack and debrief, if you like, that announcement and what's happened since and share my thoughts on what's going to happen going forward because uh, I don't believe for one second that this is actually over. In a, well, I mean, it's over, but it's, it's not over in a clean way. I think a lot of people in their minds have got this idea, right, well, the, the vaccine segrega- segregation, the mandates, they come to an end, right, April 4th, nice clean break and we can get on with things. Well, based on what I'm seeing, uh, I, I don't think it's actually going to be that straightforward. Um, I think there's going to be challenges, and this thing has done some serious social harm that is not easily resolved and doesn't just quickly stop being a problem because you turn off the tap. So, um, yeah, there's there's some things to talk about here. Before I get to that, though, and I unpack all of those kinds of issues, there are a couple other things I want to talk about, and one is... Uh, effectively, it might be what, what you might call breaking news. Uh, it's a couple of days old now, though, but I haven't seen any media coverage of this. I'm a little bit surprised by this, but I haven't seen any media coverage. But um, the Defence Force um, and Police, was it, it was the police, wasn't it? Defence Force and Police uh, people who took the court action against the government, good on them, by the way, and they won. Uh, remember that ruling a couple of weeks ago? Uh, where Justice Cook said, no, this wasn't good. Uh, There were aspects of this that were absolutely illegal, and um, it's failed, these important legal tests around the Bill of Rights. Uh, And it was big news, um, and there was a lot of hoo-ha about this, and we had people who were totally unqualified, like with no qualification whatsoever in legal matters, being asked to give their opinion on why they thought this was a bad ruling. Um, Remember all of that sort of stuff. Well, the... There's a, I received an email from a friend of mine who's on the mailing list for this group who, have, who fought this mandate, and they have just been notified on Friday that the government is actually about or has appealed that ruling. 
striking down the vaccine mandates for those workers. So let me read to you from that particular email that went out, the key paragraphs here. The Crown have today, so that was uh, March the 25th, I believe, the Crown have today filed an application to appeal the government ruling on the police and defence mandates judicial review. In this, Justice Cook ruled that the specified vaccinations order was unlawful and struck it down. The specific grounds for the Crown's appeal, so this is why they're mounting the appeal, is that the High Court failed to apply the precautionary principle in its assessment of the New Zealand Bill of Rights. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the ins and outs of this particular argument are, but the precautionary principle, for those who don't know, is a very important principle in ethics. Probably the first and most important principle of all in human ethics is do no harm. Closely related to that is the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle basically says if there's indications that that your actions could cause harm to, obviously, other human beings, then you should cease acting out of precaution until you know for certain your actions are not causing harm. So I'm assuming that they've said that this ruling has failed that principle. It's, um, they've sort of haven't, that they, they should have acted with caution and upheld the rulings. I think that's what they're, I don't know the ins and outs. It doesn't explain exactly what in this case that might mean, but that's what the precautionary principle is. Now, let me carry on with the statement. This is a weak argument, as Justice Cook specifically mentioned consideration of this principle in the case. So he's already talked about it. As the government have already announced the removal of mandates for the police and New Zealand Defence Force, the Crown have not asked to have the order reinstated. So they're not asking for things to go back. Instead, they have asked the Court of Appeal to provide a declaration effectively saying that the order was not unlawful. Ultimately, this means that the outcome will change nothing and is just about them saving face. I think that's probably partially true. I think it's also there are legal ramifications or possible implications, I would imagine, if the ruling stands. So the question then becomes, what about the people who were sacked? Do they have grounds now to sue the Crown, uh, sue the government for the way they were treated because what was done to them was illegal? And I wonder if that's a big motivator here. We believe that this is a huge waste of taxpayer funds. I would agree with that. Given the weak argument of the appeal, the defence and police respondents have chosen to challenge it. So they're going to challenge this. The process is expected to take around six months. So there you go. In about six months' time, we will know uh, either way on this um, this particular appeal. As I said, I haven't seen anything in the media about it, which I'm kind of surprised by, because I thought this would have been newsworthy. I'm not surprised by this. I'm just surprised it took so long. I thought they might have done this within a matter of days, out of desperation to try and save face, because the timing of it all was just so, well, it wasn't, it wasn't great optics as the cool kids who like to cover the behaviour of errant politicians say. It's all about the optics. Um, but nonetheless, this is happening. And as I said, I suspect it's got a lot to do with the risks legally that might be involved. If you've sacked people from their jobs, you can't just assume that they'll go quietly into that good night now, uh, even if they're reinstated. There's, a, there's some big implications, I think, here. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that... Uh, Sanity prevails, rationality prevails, 
and uh, proper commitment to the New Zealand Bill of Rights and Human Rights prevails and uh, the Court of Appeal says, no, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Uh, you, you didn't act legally. Uh, it would help to restore a bit of faith, I think, uh, in that whole Bill of Rights process. Um, we'll talk more about that later, why that might be important. Right, uh, a couple other stories making the news. Now, this is another one that sort of snuck under the radar a bit, but I think is actually really worthy of consideration. It's got nothing to do with COVID. It's the fact that the chief censor has reclassified a film. It's a film called The Kashmir Files, or is it Kashmir? I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but uh, let's say Kashmir Files. And it's the reason that the um, the chief censor has reclassified it is because the Muslim community in New Zealand asked him to do this. So let me read to you from the article and why I find this quite troubling. The chief censor has reclassified Bollywood film, The Kashmir Files. Now, I'm not sure if it is a Bollywood film. Um, I suppose it is. I mean, is, is Bollywood, this is an interesting question. Maybe I need to do a bit of research on this, but... I used to think Bollywood was just indie, any particular Indian cinema, but if I understand it correctly, I'm not sure that is the case, is it that Bollywood is a particular style of Indian cinema and rather than like Hollywood being the place where all you know Hollywood films come from, I don't know if Bollywood is just a description for every Indian film. So this, as I understand, I don't, I don't think this is a musical or what you might call a typical Bollywood film. Um... But anyway, so the the Kashmir files, after the Muslim community raised concerns, it may stoke anti-Muslim sentiment. Well, why would that be? The film was originally classified as R16, that's here in New Zealand, but now only those aged 18 and over will be allowed to see it. The Kashmir files is a 2022 Indian Hindi language drama film and is a fictional account of the exodus of Hindu people during the Kashmir insurgency in 1990. Members of the Muslim community had approached Shanks, so that's uh, David Shanks, our chief censor, worried the film could, quote-unquote, raise anti-Muslim sentiment and potential hatred. And this is because of the role that Muslims played in that particular region in the mistreatment of Hindu uh, and, and Hindi uh, Indian, and I think maybe others as well in that particular region. So they're concerned that any negative portrayal is going to have negative implications for the wider Muslim community in general, which is a position I'm not actually sympathetic to. I, I, I think you have to be honest about history, and if you're involved in a, or you're part of a group that acted in a particular way, that is worthy of our honest critique. We shouldn't be afraid of that critique. We shouldn't be trying to hide from that. We shouldn't shouldn't be trying to suppress the critique, which is what this reeks of. Shanks said the concerns were based on behaviours surrounding the film rather than the film itself. So in other words, he's reclassified not because of the content of the film, but because of concerns about the film. So there's nothing in the film he's saying to justify this, but he's done it anyway. He was referring to videos that had appeared online showing cinemas in India full of people cheering, shouting hate slogans and calling for violence against Muslims. Well, first of all, I, I've, I haven't seen that footage. I would also be cautious about these sorts of claims. Like, there's context, it seems, that matters. Um, yeah, and, and it would be interesting to know what, what was actually going on in that context. 
because sometimes you find that these claims of, you know, hateful behaviour, they're not always untrue, but they can be perhaps, um, what's the word, sensationalised or overhyped. Um, and also, you remember, you're dealing with a culture here where a much more vocalised and publicly expressive culture, they express their emotions and their sentiments and their feelings a lot more openly, not like New Zealand, we're a bit more repressed, if you like, in that regard. So uh, I think that context has to be taken into consideration. The question is, did it spark actual violence? Did it spark, you know, was it an impetus for something or was it just people expressing themselves? Because obviously, remember, there's an actual history here. There's real people who are the victims of something here. And so it seems that must be considered in this anyway. Uh, let me carry on. I watched the film and I am satisfied that it does not promote extremism or violence in a way that would require it to be classified as banned in New Zealand, Shank said. However, I think an R18 restriction is warranted given the nature and intensity of the violence and cruelty depicted. This age restriction is consistent with what the film received in Australia and India. Shanks also clarified suggestions that the decision to review the film was in some way improper or politically influenced. The independence of my office is absolutely central to carrying out our challenging role and I will always act to protect it, he said. Which is kind of interesting because clearly this is political. Like he said himself, the, the content of the film is not why he changed it. In fact, he initially reviewed the film, so his office looked at it and said this is a, an R16 movie and I suspect that's probably a realistic rating myself. I think the whole R18, R16 is a bit pointless, quite frankly. Um, I, I really do believe it's that this is not going to stop anyone under 18 watching this film. It's that simple. In the advent of the internet, you will be able to access this movie very easily online and people will be able to share it with their children. Um, you can also potentially get people into the cinemas, I think, relatively easily. I, I think this is actually um, rather pointless virtue signalling in some ways, but it is definitely political because his office looked at the film and said, based on the content, this is an R16, but then the Muslim community said, no, this is not fair, it paints us in a bad light. And we want you to reclassify this. In fact, they asked for it to be banned, which I think is quite troubling because that's not really how things like this, I don't think, should work. I think you ban things if there is a legitimate reason to ban them, like they are actually inciting. So they're, they're, they're a criminal. It's a, it's a piece of uh, content that is criminal in nature, that is inciting, that, it, that has actually been shown that it will do legitimate harm, or it's obscene, because there's a harm to the community in uh, an obscenity. And so I, I've got no problem with, in those situations, those sorts of standards being applied. But to have a film that you've said is an R16, and then a group politically motivated says, well, we want it reviewed, we want it banned. And then you come back and you say, well, we're not going to ban it, but we'll give it an R18 instead. How's that? To me, this is absolutely political. Despite what he's claiming here, it is absolutely political. It, it can't be anything but political because they already gave it a rating. And the rating, like you said, it was based on the content. It's... It's not, there's nothing in the film that incites hatred. So why would you suddenly ramp up the rating like this after a group have complained? To me, I've got a problem with this because the reason for the upping the rating, I just don't think stands, you know, the test of legitimacy. 
And that's what's so troubling for me is that if you are rating movies uh, or re-rating them because a mistake was made, that's fine. And that therefore there's a, a legitimate change needs to be made. But if you're re-rating something because a group says, well, politically it would be more expedient for us if you did this, then there's a problem here. It, it's also, I, I can guarantee you that if a film appeared, and there's lots throughout history we could point to, but let's say the next time a piece of anti Christian propaganda or a Christ, propaganda, uh, propagandistic filmmaking that's uh, hostile to Christianity. Next time one of those appears, I guarantee you, if um, the Christian Church in New Zealand asked for it to be appealed and said, "Well, we don't think this is fair. We think it paints us in a harmful light. We are concerned about how we will be treated as a result," I can bet you dollars to donuts that nothing will be done to change the rating of that particular film. I would put money on it. So, yeah. I, I, I think there's some uh, yeah pretty troubling stuff in this, but uh, but it's something too that I, it's sort of I, it sort of slipped under the radar, and and I've got I've got strong concerns about this. And again, if you think about the coming hate speech debate, which will be something that we will be discussing uh, in a bit more detail on this show, when that sort of finally hits the radar in a big way, and you think about what's happened here with this film in light of that you realise that definitely our chief census office, and I would say this is not unusual of other authorities throughout the land, they definitely have put the Islamic community, I think, into a special protected class. And that raises uh, some serious conversations or some serious issues about the kind of conversations we can have in public that might relate to um, maybe the religious tenets of that community or conduct of that community or other things where there might be uh, a place for legitimate charitable civil discourse, but that discourse is being silenced and people are being accused of hate speech just for even having the conversation. And I, I think, um, yeah, I have to say, I am concerned by this. Next cab off the rank is a piece that appeared on the 16th of March on Radio New Zealand on their website, and it, gosh, it has all the hallmarks of um, state-funded defences of the government. It's uh, a piece on uh, the Conversation series on Radio New Zealand by, I'm not sure whether it's Susie or Suze Wilson. Her name is spelled S-U-Z-E. And I I'm, I thought maybe it was Susie, but then I thought, I think it might be Suze Wilson. I'm not sure either way. I don't think it matters terribly much. We'll talk about the content. That's what's interesting. Uh, she's a senior lecturer in executive development at Massey University at the School of Management, and this piece was published that she wrote called From Petty Communist to, or Pretty Communist, sorry, Petty Communist, to Jab Cinder behind the vitriol directed at Jacinda Ardern. <laughs> and this basically is little more than a defensive piece. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, a, it's not a puff piece in, this, in one sense, but in another sense it's a puff piece. There's not a lot of substance here. But this seems like little more than a piece that's designed to come out in defence of the Prime Minister and people calling her names. And I, again, I raised, uh, the questions I would raise about this is, uh, uh, is this actually a good waste of our, our taxpayer time and money, Radio New Zealand, remember? Is this uh, a good waste or a good use of, of, um, of journalistic resources? Uh, even the publication of this. And I guess more importantly, is this actually running interference and running a defense? Because I, I just can't remember when this sort of content was run in defense of any other political leader in our history. I, 
I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't remember at this. And, and I think the reason I want to touch on this one is because I think we're going to see more of this in the lead up to the election now. We're going to see more of this now that the COVID baby has uh, been well and truly flushed with the bathwater or is being flushed. This will be the next sort of um, line of defence of the Prime Minister, I think, that you'll see a lot more of. Accusations that anyone who criticises her is a, a bad person. Uh, just for criticising here. So let's read from this article. Uh, if you're new here, by the way, we post links in the show notes uh, each time we have a patron's episode for all of the articles that we discuss. And so you can find in today's show notes the, the link to this and all the other articles if you want to read them in more detail. So let me jump start partway through this article. Even on the supposedly professional social networking site LinkedIn, false claims that Ardern is a tyrant or dictator have been increasingly commonplace. For those making such claims, factual, constitutional, electoral and legal realities seemingly hold no weight. So what fuels these levels of antagonism? I suggest there are three factors at play, and we'll unpack her factors in just a second, but I kind of find this interesting that she doesn't. She's not quite registering which what I think is the real issue here. That even on a site like LinkedIn, you've got people calling Ardern a tyrant and a dictator. There's a reason why people level names at a or any political leader, and the question is that she's failing to ask here is why would they be calling her names like this? And instead, what she's fixated on straight from the get go is. Uh, that's that's uh that's factually inaccurate. <laughs> that's that doesn't hold constitutional factual um uh, scrutiny, and it's, she's not an actual tyrant. She's not an actual dictator. It's like, yeah, that that's completely missing the point. The point is, people are calling her that because there is a sentiment that is growing, and the fact that that sentiment has now found its way onto LinkedIn, which is genuinely a place for more sort of professional leadership type self-promotion rather than general social commentary. And the fact that it's there now, I mean, obviously I think LinkedIn is just changing as the times change as well. It's just another social platform in a sense. But it also speaks to the fact that there is a strong hostility to the Prime Minister out there. And it would be worth us asking if we really were claiming to be an expert trying to analyse this, well, why is that? instead of fixating on whether it's technically the terms that are being used are technically, you know, constitutionally correct or not. You know, that, that, that's, that's not the point. The point is that the senti sentiment is real and it is growing. And uh, it seems that, you know, that's any serious scrutiny would be trying to understand why is that? What's happened here? And this article is effectively a, a way to try and write that all off and suggest that it's, you know, bad people are saying bad things and it's the Prime Minister's got no, you know, really, she really does effectively suggest there's no blame on her part for any of this. So let me read to you from the first part of this article. She says context matters. In Ardern's case, the public's main concerns right now, food and fuel prices, rental and home ownership costs and the effects of the Omicron outbreak are beyond the direct control of any political leader. Some will require years of transformative effort before significant improvements are seen. Well, in actual fact, A, that, that's not true. That, that's a classic cop-out. Oh, the fuel prices, the food prices, got nothing to do with me. 
I mean, sure, I'm, I'm the leader in charge of the government, like other Western governments who impose these draconian restrictions as a tool, as a methodology to try and fight a respiratory illness, and they had some big-time blowback, but, uh, you know, it's not my fault. It's COVID's fault. COVID made me do a bad policy. No, it didn't. The policy is, is your response to the COVID. And, and so sort of say, well, it's, you know, no leader's got control over this. Well, then what, what, what do leaders have control over? Because they certainly take a lot of credit on the flip side. And our prime minister has been definitely not shy in taking credit for this sort of stuff. Um, but here's the other thing, too, is that this government has had years. So it'll take um, years of transformative effort. Well, where has that transformative effort been before now? Like home ownership is, and rental crisis, this is not a new problem. It is just dishonest to claim that this has suddenly evolved very recently. It's been a problem for years. Successive governments have failed to address it, including our current Prime Minister and her government. So to sort of say, oh, she's just, it's, she's just so new in the game, that's kind of ironic, actually, when you look at one of the other allegations she um, uh, tackles in a moment. Uh, she goes on and says this, A paradox of leadership is that while followers will often hold unrealistic expectations that leaders can solve complex problems quickly, they, they are also quick to blame leaders when they fail to meet those unrealistic expectations. Well, yes, in this case, that's because our Prime Minister has painted herself as a God Queen on Earth. And I, I, maybe that's a little bit harsh, I don't know. We'll call that the, the tail end of COVID. But um, the simple fact is she has. She has done everything in her power to take credit and to present herself as the, the sort of, you know, we did it, it was our, we were the ones, we acted quickly, we saved New Zealand, and look how awesome we are. And then they're sort of surprised when we say, okay, now, now, now analyse the failures. And, and all of a sudden we get angry and upset when our leaders turn around and try and pass the, the blame off for some, to someone else or something else. So they'll take all the credit themselves. So let's be clear, this, this, this um, sentence is written as if somehow it's a paradox, it's a mystery. No, it's not a mystery. It's because leaders in this context, in the political context, they are not backward in coming forward and taking credit for anything and everything. But as soon as there's blame to be shared, oh, no, 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 it's someone else's fault. That's not something I'm going to be taking any credit for. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, let's be honest, shall we? The second obvious reason lies in the COVID-related policies, including vaccine mandates, crowd limits and border controls that have disrupted people's lives and been heavily criticised by vested interests, such as expat New Zealanders and various business sectors, what, what a loaded term, vested interests. These people have vested interests. How dare they criticise a policy which affects them directly? Everyone, I would suggest, has vested interests here when you've got these nationwide COVID-related policies that are being you know, just clamped down suddenly out of nowhere in a foreign to the human society and human experience. Everyone has a vested interest. But I'm sorry, saying expat New Zealanders you know, they've got a vested interest, as if somehow there's something negative about that. You mean they actually want to come home, but they find that the borders are closed and there's this bizarre MIQ lottery going on and, yeah, and the business sector. So, in other words, people who are just trying to make a living and feed their family and they, they're struggling to do that because of these bizarre and oftentimes inconsistent, uh, highly questionable policies of course they have a vested interest in that, and of course they should be allowed to 
to criticise that. But it wasn't just those groups. The general public saw the problems here too. Uh, Anti-mandate protests in particular have become become a front for wider anti-vaccine movements and extreme right-wing conspiracists. Oh dear, so anyone who protests now, you know, they're a front. It's, it's a, you know, you, you scratch the surface and you find the river of filth. You know, that, that's what she's saying here. She's just, as you can see here, this is a, this is a piece, a PR piece written in defence of the Prime Minister. It's not, it, I, I can't take this woman and the claim she's making seriously when she's saying things like that, when it's so obvious that this is a, a political defence and not really an honest analysis of what's really going on. While the Prime Minister must balance restrictive policies with the greater public good, detractors are not bound by such considerations. Well, I really wish the Prime Minister would actually balance her restrictive policy settings with the greater public good, and I wish that that would begin with a proper analysis of the ethics of what she's done here. Uh, But that never happened. Uh, yeah, but you can see, so you see the difference, right? These people are crazy extremists. It's a right-wing front or a front for right-wing extremism. But the prime minister, of course, she's balancing the public good, and you know she's, uh, you know, she's doing something for the good of the people. You know, you can. See, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to be too cynical. Let's say cynicism is a, another symptom of, <laughs> of ongoing COVID symptoms. Ironically, by demonstrating a firmness to resolve of resolve, sorry, to act in the nation's best interest. So in other words, yeah, the Prime Minister is acting in your best interest. Trust her, trust her, trust her. This is all such loaded language. It's just it's just a PR defense of someone. Something leaders might normally expect praise for, and which Ardern has won international admiration. Again, here's another thing from her CV. Let me tell you how awesome she is. Leaders become open to accusations of being inflexible and unresponsive. So ironically, by demonstrating a firmness of resolve to act in the nation's best interest, leaders become open to accusations of being inflexible and unresponsive. Now that's not what's going on here. It's an an actual fact. So often the accusation against the Prime Minister has been their failure to act when they should have acted. And then they try and claim that they did act quickly and then they make a mess of things. The, the problem here is not showing a firmness of resolve. That's not the problem. In fact, there's different examples you could cite where people, the general public, complained about the lack of firmness of resolve here. The, the problem is that these accusations of being inflexible and unresponsive are true because that's what they've become. But more importantly, it's really to do with the fact that they've imposed unethical and draconian and tyrannical policies on people, like forcing them to be vaccinated without their consent, punishing people for simply declining a medical therapy. That's beyond inflexible and unresponsive. That's immoral. And that's what's got so many people upset. Echoed by opposition politicians and some media commentary, these elements combine to feed a sense of growing frustration. Yes, it's all just a plot. It's all just a plot of some media people and the opposition parties and some crazy right-wing extremists and conspiracy theorists and vested interests. You know, that's what's actually going on here. It's, it's not. Like, like as, as I said at the beginning, you can see this is nothing more than a, a, a very thinly veiled, it's not even well veiled, but a very thinly veiled piece of political interference in defence of the Prime Minister from Radio New Zealand. 
Here's the next complaint she levels against people who are raising questions about the Prime Minister. But these first two factors alone, while significant, don't explain the full extent of the violent and hateful rhetoric directed at Ardern, albeit by a minority. Rather, well, if it's a minority, why would you write this article? Something to ponder, I guess. Rather, it's clear this is rooted in sexist and misogynistic attitudes and beliefs further amplified by the conspiratorial mindsets. So they're not just conspiracists, they're not just far-right, but they're misogynists, right? And they're sexists. So you see what's going on here. And by the way, this is not the first of this kind. I've seen several articles in the last week that have taken this kind of tone in defence of the Prime Minister. This will be the new thing you will see more of. To question the Prime Minister is an act of misogyny. To question the Prime Minister is an act of right-wing hatred. It's, it's childish. It's boring. It's unintelligent. It's a failure to engage with the issues. Uh, it is about as far from academic as you can get, can I humbly suggest. Uh, what's known as role incongruity theory Trust an academic to come up with a name like that. What's known as role incongruity theory further suggests that Ardern jars with what traditionalists expect of good women, those dirty, filthy traditionalists. Overall, the sexism and misogyny inherent in these traditionalist beliefs mean Ardern is treated more harshly than a male prime minister pursuing the same policies would be. To which I say... Lies, 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 and nonsense. In actual fact, we've got examples right now of male prime ministers in the Western world who are copying the exact same level of vitriol. Justin Trudeau would be one great example. Uh, Macron. Is it Macron? Macron, the president of France. Uh, he has He's had riots targeted at him, his government, in their policies. Scott Morrison in Australia. So it's just blatant falsehood to claim that this is just because she's a female. No, it's the policies that are the problem. And we see when we look around the West right now that lots of different leaders, many of them male, are also being targeted with the exact same level of frustration and vitriol. Now, me, I don't believe that you should level uncharitable or hateful or obscene things towards another person, I don't think that's a good thing to do. I think it lacks virtue. However, at the same time, I understand how a frustrated, bullied, repressed, coerced, and powerless group of people, I understand why they would get so angry and they would lash out like this. It's common around the West at the moment. It's not just here. It's not just our Prime Minister. It's a lot of them. They seem to have decided that they are there to save the world, and there's also a, a coddling and a fragility in all of this that hasn't helped. And I think they've overreacted. They've tried to insulate us in cotton wool. And I don't think that that's good governance. I think it's a failure to respect the human dignity of others, and it's a failure to help people stand on their own two feet and actually grow their own legs. It treats them as if they are children and they're incapable and incompetent. I'm not surprised because it's a consistent trend that's been happening in other policy areas, really ideologically motivated, for some years now, and so it's not surprising that when COVID came along, we would see that same sort of ideological sort of thing of treating people with fragility and wrapping them in cotton wool um, and coddling them 
that, that I'm not surprised we see this happen in this area as well. But that's what's gone on. People get angry, get angry about it. Uh, let me carry on. She talks about traditionalist myths. Uh, and by the way, this is this whole very much, this is the cultural Marxism thing, you know, the pushing back against tradition because tradition is evil, right? You must be engaged in a constant state of revolutionary overthrow of that which has gone before because tradition is evil and the new is the good. And so this is why you're getting this nonsense here. Insults and abuse commonly directed at Ardern on social media reflect the generally gendered nature of cyber violence, which disproportionately targets women. Well, I don't think that's true either. As someone who has existed in and operated in the online space for many years now, I think I'm just thinking for me, it's been, I've been in, involved in this space since the start, the advent of social media. Uh, and so I, I've been on this journey. And I've run several different YouTube channels and I've worked in the space and I've engaged in public comment and commentary in different roles and capacities over that 15 years. And I know and understand how social media works. And I'm telling you right now, I don't think it actually does disproportionately target uh, or doesn't disproportionately target females. Uh, the, 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 what she's calling cyber violence, which is people just abusing you online, it's consistent across the board. Everyone gets online and, and they act this way. It's, it's an effect, actually. It's called online disinhibition effect. You get online and you stop thinking and acting with empathy towards another person because you don't see a face. You don't hear a voice. You don't see their eyes. You just see pixels and you lose the plot. That's why Twitter is a place, and, and what makes it even worse is the limited number of characters and people just with a limited number of characters and what they think is no one watching and they don't, their brain is, is stops telling them they're engaging with another human being and they say the most horrific and ugly and vile things to other people in that climate. And it's not gendered, and it's not, I guarantee you, if you actually did a, a proper analysis of this, you would see that it's actually consistent across the board. Anyone who sticks their head up and who says the wrong thing in front of the wrong group comes in for a, a lashing, a ton of abuse. And a, the, the best strategy is just to actually ignore it, by the way. Uh, these insults translate traditionalist beliefs into sexist and misogynist acts. Okay, so see this? This is tradition manifesting itself in this ugly way in internet comment sections. Referring to Ardern as Cindy, for example, infantilizes her. Call it, well, yeah, but I think it's also, it's like um, we, we like rhyming words if you, you know, that, that Cindy's kindy. Uh, you know, it works. Jacinda's kindy doesn't really work, doesn't have the same hook to it. So um, I think calling her Cindy is, I mean, I was thinking about this before, what, what, what's, the, what's the barb there? I guess maybe it sort of infantilizes her. Come on, Cindy. I don't know if it does, actually. I actually, the more I think about it, I think it's more like a sort of Cindy as in um, that sort of airhead 1980s type insult. Maybe that's, um, I don't know, maybe I'm reading that right. I, you know, I guess it doesn't matter, but anyway. Calling her a pretty communist not only reflects the sexist and misogynist view that a woman's worth is measured by her appearance, but also suggests her looks disguise her real aims. Well, no, that doesn't actually suggest that at all. The reason people call her a communist is because she is absolutely an unabashed Marxist has been since before and during when she was an MP, before she became PM. You can go and watch the video footage of her online. She was head of the International Marxist Socialist Youth Movement. I mean, 
they call her that because that's exactly what her political philosophy has been. I mean, it may have changed, but she was very much steeped in that. And I think they call her a pretty communist because the implication here is that there's um there's a the 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 beauty is deceptive. There's a barb in the beauty. The prime minister does have a beauty, a physical beauty, but there's also a barb. There's a hook here, and that's the ideology of communism. Um, and, uh, yeah, the sexist misogynist view that a woman's worth is measured by her appearance. Um, so you know these are these are sort of just what I would call progressive, typical progressive academic talking points here coming out. This plays on the traditional trope of woman as evil seductress. Maybe, or maybe it's just stating an obvious reality. Here's someone who has a strong history of uh, ideological commitment to communist beliefs. She has policies which do absolutely reek of a Marxist approach to the world. She is someone who is physically has a beauty to her. Um, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, is it... Are they really trying to say that she's an evil seductress? I'm, I'm not sure that's what they're saying. Uh, from there, it's a short leap to the conspiracy theories that depict Ardern as part of an evil international cabal. You know, I, I don't think there's any really need to say, sort of take any short leaps or anything. It's just a matter of saying, yeah, she's part of that, uh, that new breed of leaders who were all schooled together, the World Economic Forum group. They are acting uh, in ways that are consistent and are in concert. They're acting in ways that are absolutely worthy of critique and, uh, and I think, criticism. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's what people have picked up on there. But uh, you're part of an evil international cabal. It doesn't, there doesn't need to be any great hidden conspiracy about this, folks. It's just if you form and train your leaders politically to act and think a certain way, then don't be surprised when they all start acting and thinking, or they think and then they act in a certain way once they get power. They follow the training, so to speak. Unfortunately for traditionalists and extremists alike, the evidence shows that effective leaders do not conform to their ideal play by their, sorry, to their ideal or play by their rule book. Yeah, we're fighting back, baby. See, that, that's not, that is not a, a, a neutral statement. That's absolutely not a neutral statement. That is a, a strong statement of defiance and defense. You know, unfortunately, for traditionalists and extremists alike, the evidence shows that effectively, so in other words, Jacinda Ardern does not conform to their ideal or play by their rule book. Instead, they tend to be collaborative, humble, team-orientated, and able to inspire others to work for the common good, qualities women often exhibit. Well, yeah, that's true, but so do men as well. There's plenty of male leaders who have exhibited those qualities. It's about the goodness, truth, and beauty. It's about the virtue of your leadership, not your genitals. By the way, all of a sudden we care about genitals and gender again. Isn't that interesting? Um, but it, it's they are qualities that females exhibit. They're also qualities that males exhibit. And, and I've seen the good leadership from both. They reflect that. But here's the thing. I think you're kidding yourself if you think the prime, that our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has actually modelled those behaviours in some key areas in, um, during this COVID time. I, I would argue it's been an absolute failure to inspire others and an absolute failure to work for the common good, which is about the conditions which are common to all humanity for their flourishing. And she failed that very test when, you, when she punished people and segregated people simply for declining a medical therapy. So yeah, 
let's not play that game. Of course, and this is the final statement, of course, Ardern's performance is not beyond criticism, but a fair-minded analysis, free from sexist and misogynist bias, would suggest the hatred directed toward her says more about the haters than Ardern. So in other words, I'm not racist, but... Of course, the, you know, Ardern's performance is not beyond criticism, but... In actual fact, it really is. And that the only people who are criticising her are a bunch of sexist misogynists and, and, and extremists. And, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're just directing their hatred at her. And that says more about them than Ardern. She's a great leader, you know. So, yeah, this is just, honestly, there is nothing of substance in this. It's uh, not a long piece at all, but it is, gosh, it's just political interference, and it's being published by Radio New Zealand. And like I said, you can expect to see more of this. <laughs> can I humbly suggest we're going to see more of this now? Now that the COVID, uh, the COVID blanket has been ripped away from those in power, the little safety blankie, there'll be other things that they'll resort back to, and one of them, of course, will be accusations of misogyny and hatred and bigotry and conspiracies etc just for daring to criticise or raise questions about what the Prime Minister and the government is up to um, very typical human behaviour and uh, yeah that's how taxpayer dollars hard at work right so let's get on to the, the main topic of this episode and that is the end of vaccine segregation and mandates, well it's almost here it's coming it's almost here um, before we get into some of the things I want to talk about, though, just I, I, I sort of basically want to give a, a, a potpourri sort of analysis here to share my thoughts, no particular order or, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a logical stream to it, but not, it's not a deep sort of logical, you know, overarching sort of analysis that's going to start somewhere and end in another particular place. It's really just me sharing my thoughts and some things that I think are worthy of our consideration going forward. Before I do that, though, let, let's just take a step back and consider exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about mandates and vaccine segregation, which the Prime Minister was told not to engage in. So her own advisors, and we, talk, we have talked about this on a previous episode, her own advisors advised her, don't do this. They didn't advise going down this path, but she chose to go down this path. This is uh, a policy whereby she was infamously interviewed. I think it was a Saturday morning, but you remember that media interview where she's asked. So I'm sure you wouldn't put it this way. The journalists are trying to feed her every opportunity to get it right. And she still just puts a big smile on her face and says, uh, says the wrong thing. Well, the right thing. She was honest, at least. Um, but uh, he says to her, I'm sure you wouldn't see it this way, but um, you know, this, but this is creating a too clear, too tier class, you know, society, a two-class two society, a two-tier society, two classes of people. And she just put this malicious grin on her face and she, she says, she's leaning back comfortable ways and she says, yep, yep, this is exactly what I'm doing. Just astounding stuff. That's what this is. So a, as we now surround ourselves with this new state of PR and spin and soppy, uh, serious looks of, of empathy and compassion and kindness, let's remember, let's remember the actual facts and not get pulled in to the dishonest emotion uh, in all of this. It's also something that the Human Com Rights Commissioner uh, reiterated again. So this was on the 17th of March. He said that he told the Prime Minister that he felt 
that the traffic light system had a divisive quality. I'll talk more about that in a second. Let me read you from this this particular article from News Hub. The Human Rights Commissioner told the Prime Minister last year there was a divisive quality to the traffic light framework. Appearing before Parliament's Justice Select Committee on Thursday morning, the Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt told MPs he wrote to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern at the end of last year. Hunt said he pointed out there is a significant integral difference between the alert level system and the traffic light system. On the whole, the alert level system was quite unifying, but the traffic light system has within it a divisive quality. So I drew that to the attention of the Prime Minister, he said in response to questions from Nationals' Chris Bishop. I said that I thought there was a risk that the traffic light system, without great care, could conceivably become socially not cohesive, but divisive. I expressed that concern. It was those issues that I discussed with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet a few weeks ago, and I anticipate they'll be on the agenda when I meet with the Prime Minister next week. Wow. I mean, I'm I'm grateful for that little tidbit or that little bone, that little crumb that's been thrown the way of the New Zealand people. I'm a bit frustrated he didn't speak more publicly and vocally at the time and make more of a deal out of this. He is the Human Rights Commissioner after all. This has been one of those areas, along with the New Zealand Bill of Rights, where sadly... Uh, I've been hugely disappointed with the Human Rights Commission. For all intents and purposes, during a very crucial moment where we actually needed them to actually act like a human rights commission, they acted like another impotent mechanism that just failed the people. The Bill of Rights sadly being the other one, which is why that court ruling earlier we were talking about I think is so important, because it gave a glimmer of light uh, and another was extremely disappointing situation to be in, and, and and a very revealing one, which shows how these supposed mechanisms we rely on actually aren't really worth the paper they're written on once you create enough fear and you convince enough people that your unethical behaviours are actually good and justified. And, uh, yeah, extremely, extremely troubling situation. Very frustrating for me that the Human Rights Commission was just this impotent mechanism. And even when things got really heated, the best they came up with a few weeks ago was, and he talked about this in the article, was we were motivated to create a campaign about having respectful discussions and conversations. It's like, this is crazy. A, that's not your job. You know, you're not the, the commission for the promotion of peaceful dialogue. You are the Human Rights Commission. Your job is to address issues and questions that arise around the treatment of human beings that, and, and, and ways that impinge upon their legitimate natural rights. And that's exactly what this policy did. So, you know, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about this vaccine segregation. We're also talking about a policy that abjectly, even if you're a utilitarian, so you're not like me, and you don't buy into the dignitarian ethics of of this and see the ethical failure, and you think, well, the end justifies the means, even that failed. Like, this policy failed that test. Because it didn't work. This policy didn't do a thing, and the evidence was there right from the very beginning that it wasn't going to do a thing. This is before even Omicron arrived. It It got worse and simply farcical with Omicron about how ineffective a mandate and a, a segregation policy is. 
because we were lied to. Remember, we were told initially it's about keeping people safe. It's about keeping people safe. The segregation reduces the risk of transmission. That was the lie. The whole time, and if you go back and listen to my original podcast about this last year, you will hear me very clearly spelling out that this was a, that was a lie and that this was a punitive measure. It was designed to coerce people into getting a vaccine. It was an attempt to punish people for not getting a medical therapy. Now, the Prime Minister, Michael Baker, Chris Hipkins and others have all admitted that now. They, they, of course, they, like Michael Baker called it, uh, it was, it was uh, nudging people's behaviour. That's what it was designed for. It wasn't a safety tool. It was about nudging behaviour. It was absolutely immoral. But that's what this was. And it was uh, just a blatant, dishonest lie to claim that this was actually going to reduce the risk of COVID in the community. It was just utter nonsense. It was all about rewarding one class of people. You go and get the therapy we want you to get and you will get um, social uh, inclusion. If you don't do it, we will socially ostracize you. This is so shocking. Even as I'm saying this, it's just even the shock of it. It's just, it comes back to me again. I just can't believe how shocking this whole thing was. But anyway, that, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And this led to problems like, for example, and you, I don't know if you saw these two articles, but they appeared just before around the time of the announcement was made about ending the, the vaccine segregation about these people who are struggling to get exemptions and who couldn't get them. And these are directly caused by a mandate segregation policy because you don't need exemptions if you're not punishing people for not getting vaccines. The only people who might need an exemption are people who are in very narrowly bandwidthed sort of mandated roles. Like, for example, people working at the border maybe or healthcare workers where I think you can to a degree. I don't think it's robust. But I think you can make arguments around that sector and the requiring of, of vaccination. However, I don't think it's robust. I think, I think there's a really good critique still that can be made of that. So it's not a foolproof argument at all. But the thing was, it was wide. The net was cast wide. It was everybody. And don't forget, remember the scenario that they were not giving out exemptions. The whole thing was an obscene and a moral thing, full stop. But... They just added more immorality and more unethical behavior to an already unethical framework. When they started doing things like saying, no, you couldn't actually go to your local doctor who knows you well, like your actual face-to-face -face medical professional and seek an exemption, they had no power to do that. Instead, it was the Ministry of Health, a bureau bureaucracy, a bureaucratic department, people in an office somewhere in Wellington, I assume, who would process you, totally unknown. You have no connection, no meaningful connection on a healthcare level with these people, and they'll decide whether or not you get the exemption. Absolutely shocking. It's not good healthcare. There's nothing good about it. Nothing moral about that kind of behaviour, and lo and behold, surprise, surprise, they just issued very, 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 very few exemptions, even for people who legitimately need them like in this case here. So this is an article that appeared in News Hub on the 20th of March, and it's about people who are experiencing chronic fatigue and about how they are struggling to get exemptions. So let me read to you from this article. The woman, who wished to remain anonymous, said she is absolutely pro-vaccination and takes the virus seriously. But she wants the estimated 25,000 Kiwis with my algic encephalomyelitis, and hopefully I've pronounced that correctly, which is ME, 
or CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, some of whom who have suffered debilitating reactions to be exempt from getting it. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. It's a view backed by the ME slash CFS expert and emeritus professor of biology, Warren Tate, who has had reports of adverse reactions from close to 100 people with the condition. He first raised concerns over the impact of vaccines on those with the condition last year. So this is last year he's been trying to resolve this issue. Contacting the Ministry of Health, Director General of Health and the Prime Minister's office to suggest they be given a medical exemption. But Kiwis with the condition are yet to receive one and in the meantime, they're suffering. This is the anonymous woman from before. The Timaru woman contacted News Hub after suffering debilitating side effects from her vaccine. So she actually went and got the vaccine. She said she had no cause for concern when she first became eligible, so she got vaccinated against COVID. But after suffering horrendous side effects, which included a quickened heart rate, extreme muscle weakness, dizziness, exhaustion, nausea, body pain, mental fatigue, migraines, night sweats, and uncontrollable shaking, she decided to visit her doctor. And by the way, those are symptoms that I have heard from directly from the mouths of people all over the world who have had adverse reactions to the vaccine. She expressed concern it could be related to the vaccine because she has chronic fatigue, but her doctor shut her down. My GP put it down to anxiety. She basically gaslit me the whole appointment, saying I was just having panic attacks. It was just anxiety. She told me I had to get it out of my head that it had anything to do with the vaccine. The woman said, believing her doctor, she got her second dose and a booster, but the impacts were again debilitating. More than a month from getting her booster, she's still suffering side effects. This is absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. By the way, that whole thing of telling people it's just anxiety, again, that is a consistent response. I've heard from some uh, medical professionals around the world where people present even to A&E departments after getting young fit people who got the vaccine because they thought it was the right thing to do and then had these kind of adverse reactions and so they go to the A&E clinic and they're told no it's just anxiety you've just got anxiety in other words you are you are making it up you're telling lies you're delusional you don't know what you're talking about it's not real Think about that as a medical practice, going to your GP and being told stuff like that. No, nah, no, nah, mate, it's all in your head. That, that kind of stuff doesn't end well. It's not good medicine. Like that, That's a GP that needs a rocket under them. They need to be told this is not healthy or helpful in dealing with patients. Even if a patient is suffering from hypochondria, surely the better thing to do is to actually gently work through that with them and to get them to come to understand what's really going on. In this case, I, I, I'm highly suspicious that that is the case based on those listed symptoms that she's just sort of making it up. And I don't understand why someone who's pro-vaccine, so pro that they went and got it, rushed out and got it, would be faking this, would suddenly say, oh, no, no, but it was really bad and the whole thing's just, you know, it's, it's awful and, and don't get vaccinated. It just seems like a strange thing for, for someone to be doing, right? But here's the thing. The reason why that GP is acting this way, you know, get it out of your head that it had anything to do with the vaccine is because she has been instructed from on high to act that way. This is what happens when you take a one-size-fits-all blanket approach and you mandate vaccines and you segregate and you punish people and you don't allow questioning and you don't allow legitimate discourse to take place. 
This is what happens. This is the co-opting of medical professionals. Their conscience is told, uh, shut that off, please. We don't want that anymore. You are now an agent of the state. You will do the bidding of this government, and your job is to enforce the policy that the government wants enforced. And it uh, doesn't matter what you have to tell people. You tell them they're a little bit cuckoo in the head if you have to. But you tell them, uh, they get those crazy ideas out of their head that that vaccine is anything but, you know, the great Jesus juice from the Lord Almighty that has come to save us from on high. You are not allowed to question the magic juice. <laughs> right? Absolutely shocking. So here's the situation. There's people who are who are legitimate reasons to give an adverse reaction exemption, and they're not getting it. Again, this wouldn't be an issue if you didn't have this immoral, widespread, blanketed mandates and segregation going on because people wouldn't be under this pressure. They would be able to say, I'm going to make an informed healthcare decision for myself. No, you can't do that. But it's not just... Those particular people. Here's another case. This story published. This this one appeared on uh, the New Zealand Herald, and it was published uh, on the 22nd of March. And this is about a guy with a young guy with pericarditis who's struggling to try and get an exemption. Have a listen to this. An Alexandra man who suffered an injury from a COVID-19 vaccine has been denied a medical exemption despite being advised not to get the second shot. So the guy actually suffered a recognised adverse reaction and they're like, no, no, no exemption for you. Well, who is getting these exemptions then? People who are dead? Well, we gave them the exemption because the first vaccine killed them and they couldn't show up for the second appointment, so we had no choice but to give them an exemption. If I had my way, though, we'd dig up the corpse and give them a second shot and a booster. Like, this is madness. Ben uh, Junatz, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, apologies if I'm not, was diagnosed with acute pericarditis after receiving the Pfizer vaccine on November 2nd. In the days following, uh, Jonatz with partner Michaela Wilson in tow endured four ambulance rides, trips to both Dunstan and Dunedin hospitals, multiple cardiologists and GP appointments, along with a slew of medical tests. And I'm looking at a photo of this guy. By the way, I encourage you to go and have a look at the photo of this guy in the article. This is unbelievable to me. This guy is clearly young, and he's younger than I am, fitter than I am, Young, fit and healthy, and he's been rolled, bold and wristled by the vaccine. However, the couple struggled to get support from ACC or the Ministry of Health. Why am I not surprised? This whole thing has been about just jabbing as many people as possible into hell with everything else. When people actually need genuine health care, I'm sorry, we're too busy. We're fixated on just sticking this thing into as many people as we can. We're helping. This new definition of healthcare that doesn't seem to go beyond vaccinating as many people as possible. Junat's medical insurer, Acuro Health Insurance, initially accepted a pre-approval for specialist consultation, but declined further cover due to his policy's pandemic clause stating any consultations or treatment related to avian influenza or other pandemic are not covered. Now, I'm pretty sure I warned about this in a previous episode. And I said, I guarantee you people who've got health insurance are going to find themselves high and dry if they get vaccine injured. Again, 
It's another reason why you shouldn't be mandating this. In mid-November, ACC informed Janats that cover for his injury had not been determined and it was unable to consider his application. That's the ACC now turning him down as well. So he's left in the lurch. He does what the government demands of him and then the government says, nah, you're on your own. Without ACC, Janats continued to work as a mechanic, agitating his condition and causing him to collapse at work. It's very stressful in a relationship in everyday life. Being 26 years old and telling your partner that you love them every night just before you go to bed because you're scared you won't be waking up in the morning to see them again. You try to do the right thing and seek help and there's no help there to support you when you think it might be, he said. ACC Chief Operating Officer Gabriel O'Connor said Janat's claim was never declined but was held while ACC sought information to determine cover. That excuse might wash if that was held like last week, but it was last November. What are we, December, January, February, March? We're now over four months ago we're talking about. We appreciate three months may feel like a long time. It's not three months. may feel like a long time to wait for a decision. However, treatment injury claims can be more complex and as such usually take longer to determine than other claims. We often need to gather full medical notes and then seek advice from an external clinical specialist before making a cover decision. I'm sorry, that's not three months worth of work. It is for a slow, inefficient bureaucracy in a system where people have been mandated to do something that normally you would not force people to do. (sighs) The COVID-19 vaccine became available in New Zealand in February last year. Between February the 18th, 2021 and February the 5th, 2022, so that's just under one year, ACC received 1,900 and 96 claims for injuries relating to the vaccination. Holy moly. Did you know that? I didn't know that till I read this article. Of these, 729 were accepted. So they were, it was irrefutable that 729 of these people were injured by the vaccine. 724 were declined. I'd love to know the grounds. And 543 were yet to be decided. You see, none of this needs to be happening. That's the, the point is that this immoral policy has caused all of these issues. And so when people talk about, oh, the vaccine segregation's over and we're just going to go back to church together, which, by the way, there's a whole other episode coming about that because, quite frankly, there's some real hard face-to-face honesty that is needed by the church in New Zealand any place where we have participated in, the, participated in this vaccine segregation, which was an act of state coercion against its own people, and the church facilitated it and punished its own people and said, you're not welcome here in some cases, or you're not welcome at this mass or this church service, you have to go to another one because you are not like the rest of us. And wherever we participated in that, we have got something that we actually need to repent of, and we need to ask forgiveness of the people who are victims of that. But if we think that this is just going to suddenly, like some big fantasy, just disappear now that 
you know, oh, look, you know how I knocked you around and abused you for all those years and kicked you out of home? Good news. Welcome back, honey. You're welcome back. We don't. We won't be talking about how I gave you black eye all those times, but just come back because I, I love you. Let's 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 be let's be husband and wife again. Doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But anyway, this is this is the re- the reality of what we're talking about here. And if we think this is all just sort of suddenly going to go away and it's just it'll all be fine, it's it's clear to me when I look and I hear public statements from different people that this is this thing has been so deeply ingrained and psychologized into people that it's not going to be easy to get out. This is something that actually needs a, an exorcism. Now, I think in church is probably a literal one, and I've already told at least one minister that I think that's what they should be doing, is publicly praying an exorcism, a prayer of exorcism about what happened here. But I think also a psychological exorcism for those who found themselves uh, possessed by these demonic ideologies about human persons and the fear and the hype and everything else. Now, as if to sort of ram the, the, the point home, the government stuck the knife in, even with their announcement about ending mandates. They didn't just say, right, it's over, here's the date. What they did was they said between now and April 4th, there's one last final twist of the knife. If you use vaccine passes at your event or your business or your gathering, your church service, you're allowed now to have 200 people in the room, not just 100, but 200. But those filthy lepers, no, you don't get to go up to, to any more than 25. Talk about sticking the blade in and giving it a twist on the way out. Unbelievable. Why? Tell me what's changed. Why would it be okay to do that? Why would it be okay to do that? Uh, because, and let me tell you, here, here's the truth of this. These vaccine mandates and vaccine segregations are not doing anything to actually protect people from COVID. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's a lake of orange water, a fantasy that people are living here. It's a numbers game with Omicron. The more people you put in a tightly confined space for a longer period of time together, the more the risk becomes. So it doesn't matter whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, but if, if you go from 100 to 200 people in a room, ironically, you're actually going to be safer in a room full of 25 unvaccinated people than you are in a room full of 200 vaccinated people. But that's what qualifies as safety policy these days. And a, a, a compliant population, would, which is just what's so troubling to me, particularly about the church's response to this, is that so many churches just have stopped even thinking about what they're doing right now. No one is even thinking through the logic of what they're actually engaging in. They're just blindly doing this thing. So the knife was stuck in one last time. And now, as I said, this thing isn't going away easy. It's obvious to me this thing isn't going away. We had this article on News Hub. And this was published just a couple of days ago, so the 24th. Businesses out on their own to decide whether to keep COVID-19 vaccine mandates because the, the government said, oh, yeah, well, we, mandates are ending and the segregation's ending uh, up to businesses to decide what they do from here. What? How does that make any sense at all? A bit of a mess. That's how one employment lawyer has described what's been left in the wake of COVID-19 vaccine mandates being lifted. Employers are now out on their own to decide who does and doesn't have to be vaccinated, but there's still no official guidance and the COVID-19 response minister is even recommending bosses lawyer up before they make any decisions. Oh yeah, we're here to save you with a podium of truth, a single source of truth, just do what we tell you, don't question it. And then all of a sudden, oh, you're on your own. You Get a lawyer, they'll tell you what to do. 
Unbelievable. All care and no responsibility. No ethical backbone. No capabilities to, to actually think through the sort of the, the logic of beyond the, the, the instantaneous here and now and this moment and what's in it for me and my political kudos and credit. I will be saviour to the nation. No consideration for how, you know, this, in actual fact, you might be the demonic um, pagan queen, not, not the, the, the god, goddess queen that you imagine yourself to be. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just, um, this makes me so angry because I know that the, 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 the carnage of this will be human carnage and it really matters. Down the stairs, buried below the streets of Wellington, bar owner Dominic Kelly has been scratching his head. It's a difficult problem, really, he told News Hub. For the last 24 hours, he's been agonising over whether to remain a vaccine-only venue. Whether it becomes optional, we can't realistically expect, well, sorry, we can realistically expect quite a lot of negative feedback if we continue to apply it. But the problem is it's all we've got, he said. It's the only protection he's got, but people are already deleting the Vaccine Pass app. There's not a lot of guidance about what's at our disposal to protect ourselves. Well, here's the thing. Um, Dominic, it's not protecting you at all. It never was. That's the lie. It's not protecting your business at all. The, the, the veil has been torn off that lie well and truly. The Prime Minister has admitted it. Baker has admitted it. Chris Hipkins has admitted it. This was about punishing people who didn't get vaccinated so that their aim was to try and reduce the number of people in hospital. But that's got nothing to do with your business. It doesn't affect your business in any way, shape or form. And I would humbly suggest to any business owner out there, you can try and tough it out if you want to, but I would suggest to you that Market Economics 101 would suggest that it, the harder you make it for customers, the less likely they are to frequent your establishment. The, the places they will, they will go to are the places where, A, for me personally now, it's about, and it always was, the morality of it, so I'm not going to support any business that's segregating and practicing unjust segregation based on medical decisions. Uh, secondly, why would I waste my time going to a place that, that you know you have to add this extra layer of presenting a vaccine pass to buy products? I'll go somewhere where they just don't have that layer. It's just easier. So yeah, but that's what we've got. Like People are stuck. See, and this is a great example of the psychology. It's so deeply ingrained now. It's not going to go away easily and quickly because people have been lied to. They were lied to and told that this was keeping people safe. It never was. And now people cling to it like a safety blanket because they're so afraid. They don't realize that they're actually powerful and can stand on their own two feet and they've got nothing to fear. The mandate rug is also ripped out from under schools. It's concerning that schools have to do that on an individual basis, says Whangarei Intermediate Principal Hayley Reid, who let two unvaccinated teachers go. She wants to keep a vaccine mandate. I'll be asking my board to take a position of only hiring vaccinated staff. What a shocking thing to say. I'd, if I had kids, they'd be like, I want to get my kids out of this school. This is crazy. It's either a level of paranoia or a level of discrimination, unjust discrimination and treatment of other people that you don't want modelled to your children, that's for sure. But COVID-19 response minister Chris Hipkins told AM, it's the AM show, a board can't say we're just going to keep an across-the-board mandate in place. And as I understand it, that's, that's correct. You, if you're going to implement a particular health and safety policy, you've got to show that it's legitimate. You can't just do anything and say it's health and safety. Uh, you know, we've decided that anyone 
uh, we, we did an analysis and we looked at the high crime population, who were the most likely to be violent offenders. And we've discovered that people of certain ethnicities appear and are, are more likely to be violent offenders. And so we are going to ban those people from our establishment. Uh, it's a health and safety measure. See, it's justified. Nah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You've actually got to show that what you're doing is legitimate. Otherwise, you are just mindlessly discriminating. But you see, people can't, people are, have been re-educated ethically here, they have been taught to think in an ethically bad way to forget about the moral imperative not to discriminate. And so now they think discrimination is actually a good moral behavior to engage in, and that's why they're so confused. If we hadn't messed with people's moral compass and instead we'd said, no, we don't do that because it is immoral, then people right now would know that this kind of behavior is immoral and they shouldn't be doing it either here. But that's what's happened. We've confused people. They've been formed to act in a bad and immoral way. And now they think the immoral behavior is the, the normal way of behaving when it's absolutely not. There are a lot of scared people out there now. I've seen this on Twitter. It's interesting. Educated, intelligent people, otherwise intelligent people, who have been lied to for months now and watching their reactions over the last week on Twitter. I've seen some insane reactions. I've seen people saying, well, you know, we should have kept these things in place. Hospitality, uh, clearly a whole lot of businesses were going to fail, but what that meant was that there are too many hospitality businesses in New Zealand. What? No, that's not what that means at all. If previously all of those businesses were thriving and surviving, and then you impose policy, and all of a sudden they start dying and struggling, then that's the policy. That's not the fault of there being too many businesses. The market will decide whether or not there are too many hospitality businesses, and clearly the market was okay with it before this policy was imposed upon the market. People were saying things like, well, oh, uh, their business models are wrong if they can't survive this. What are you talking about? If you sell a consumer good like food and coffee and you can't sell it to people because people are not showing out because they're all petrified to come out because they've been petrified and, and psychologized in this sort of psychology of terror, that's not a business model problem. That's a government policy problem. You're a business model. You should be able to survive in a business without making money. That is, that is the classic speak of the insulated public sector class who work in jobs where their income is protected against failure. So they, they can't fail because when they fail, there's no consequence financially for it. So they think that there's no such thing as a consequence for failure. And so they don't understand what happens in a business where if you fail at a business, there is a financial consequence. It's got nothing to do with whether or not your business model is wrong. Others are saying, well, businesses should be able to discriminate if they want to. It's health and safety. Again, like I said, that's not what health and safety is. You can't just do anything and say, well, that's health and safety. And oh, the irony. Some of the same people who say, well, you can't have a, a Christian baker declining to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony by baking a cake. But oh, goodness me, you can absolutely banish people, and you should banish these people from your business premises if they haven't had a medical therapy. I mean, this is just, oh, the irony. Here's the thing. This is the thing that someone needs to really shock these people out of their um, psychological demonic possession. And, and, and what needs to happen is they need to confront this very important question. If the vaccines work, 
why do you need vaccine segregation and mandates? If they work, why do you need vaccine segregation and mandates? Because everyone who's got the vaccine, which is lots of people now, everyone who's got the vaccine is protected, right, if the vaccine works. So anybody who turns up who doesn't have a vaccine, they're the ones at risk, not you. So even if they turn up and your fantasy of believing that they are somehow worse super spreaders of COVID than you are, and they turn up and spread COVID, guess what? The vaccine works, you're fine. Oh, Brennan, we never said it would stop transmission. Well, that was actually the first lie, but then quickly that lie got put paid to when it was clear it wouldn't actually stop transmission. And then it became, well, it was, it was about reducing hospital admission. Okay, we fine. The, the, the people who are vaccinated are not going to get the worst experience, right? So you're protected. Why do you need the segregation any longer? It's purely a state of psychological delusion. It, it is, a, it is a, a state of mass hysteria that we're still in. And, and you see that in the way people are openly discussing ongoing prejudice and even hatred for the unvaccinated. And these are people who hide, hold uh, positions, I think, of uh, what I call quiet profile within our society. Even if they're not known to the general public, they actually hold positions of influence that are meaningful. The end of the vaccine mandates and segregation is also the COVID death rattle. For is it COVID or the death rattle for the uh, the so-called COVID celebrity experts? You know who I'm talking about. Let me read to you this from this article on the 23rd of March. Susie Wiles says, I'm disappointed and very nervous. Prominent microbiologist Susie Wiles is very nervous about the government's plan to ease COVID-19 restrictions, warning there's no guarantee new variants will appear milder like Omicron. Well, that's true. We'll just grapple with it as it comes. Uh, but quite frankly, you, Miss Wiles, have been in the public trying to talk up Omicron. Now you're saying it's a milder variant, but that's not what you've been saying for several weeks now. It's not mild, it's not mild, is what you've been saying. And now, well, now it is milder, is it? No. No. Now that it suits your agenda to refer to it as a mild variant, you're going to be honest now. This is the death rattle. They know it. They know that they are circling the black hole because no one's going to be interested in their scaremongering as we go forward. Dr. Wiles from the University of Auckland said upgrading vaccine passes to include booster jabs instead of scrapping them would have made at-risk people safer in indoor environments. What? How? So she said don't scrap them, actually update them and make them even tougher. If you're not boosted, you don't get, you, there's even more social exclusion, right? Another layer of it. But how would it make at-risk people safer in indoor environments when we know that you can still catch and transmit COVID even if you're fully boosted? I know two people in my circle, let alone all the others I've seen saying it online, who were fully boosted and got COVID. How, how exactly does this magical thing, the mandate and the segregation, how does it keep people safe? It doesn't. It's a fantasy. It's performative theatre that's doing nothing but falsely psychologising people into heretical false ideas about the world. Ideas that are just not true and that the more they become ingrained, the more dangerous things get in our society. Similarly, removing vaccine mandates for people working with our children who can't yet be vaccinated makes me very nervous, she said in a statement. Why? 
We've had the vaccine mandates for months now with people working at the coalface with children, and guess what? Hasn't done a thing. Those people who work with children, how's, you know, this is an old gimmick, by the way. Won't somebody think of the children? That, that's what it is. It's an emotional plea. But let's be clear here, this demographic, unless they've got comorbidities, they have the best experience of it. The least harm comes to that group. And they're also the one group who you just your ability to control illnesses and viruses and everything else is so hard with that group because they just they're normal humane kids. Their brains aren't fully developed yet. They don't think and act the way we do. And as adults have enough of a hard time trying to manage safety protocols. Dr. Wiles said in the case of QR code scanning, she would have kept that too. Oh, I bet she would. And she would have had made sure that she was regularly appearing on TV. I, um, I bet she would have. She said this, it would have made much, it would have, sorry, been much easier to just keep up the habit than rely on people picking it up again in the future. What? No, why would people be doing a mindless thing? I'm signing into this building. Why? For no reason. No. No. We'll behaviorally condition you to act a certain way and not even consider the ethical implications of doing that. That's, that's how crazy our so-called expert class was. I think that the reason why, though, really, is because she knows, like they all do, it's over. The game is over. The rot is coming to an end. The rot is coming to an end. Here's Dr. Susie Wiles, one of these so-called expert classes who we've seen so much of. Here's her on Twitter at the end of February this year. This is what she said. Replying to any of my tweets with the ableist, ah, but did they have any underlying health conditions? And or, ah, but did they die of or with COVID? Crap is an automatic block from me. Ditto. But what about all the other people who died today? So in other words, she says she will block you if, and she's calling it ableist, if you say, did, you know, every time you quote death stats about COVID, if you say, did they have underlying health conditions? Or you ask, did they die with COVID or of COVID? She says that that's crap. She says it's ableist. She blocks you. This is a so-called academic expert who is dismissing fundamental realities and points of critique about this whole pandemic. This is insane. This is the politicized nonsense we've been drowning in for two years now, and they know it's coming to an end. This is the death rattle. There's a few little shakes in the corpse yet, I'm sure, as the rigor mortis sets in. But that's who we're talking about. This is insane. I, I say the sooner we get rid of these so-called experts, the better. The less we have to hear from them, the better, quite frankly. Because they have proven to me really strongly that, that in actual fact, you don't want a technocratic class like this at all. You need real conversations with real people in the real world that are grounded in a vision. A, a, a greater vision, sorry, a bigger picture of the human person and human community and an authentic humanity, not one that's driven by fear and technocracy and a desire to try and dominate and control a, a respiratory virus, which I'm still not even convinced you can do. I just don't believe you can. It's the nature of what it is. 
Some things you can, others you can't. So as if to sort of stick the knife in two last little things here, um, you might have seen this article. It was during the rounds yesterday. It made big headlines. The government has spent $35 million in COVID advertising in the last year alone. One News has obtained official figures under the Official Information Act showing over $35 million was spent on the vaccine campaign between the 1st of March 2021 and the 28th of February 2022. So that's less than a year they spent $35 million. No breakdown has been provided of what was spent where or how much 11 social media influencers were paid. Ah, so we're paying social media influencers, are we? With my money. We'll talk about why that's absurd in just a moment. The so-called Vaxathon in October came out of a different budget, so the Vaxathon cost even more. Duncan Shand from Young Shand Advertising Agency said while it was an extraordinary amount of money, it was an extraordinary issue that the government was trying to tackle. A normal big advertising campaign can take months. There's a whole lot of work that goes into research and strategy, figuring out how to position things, then really working through all the elements, said Shand. Now, I could accept that if it wasn't for four blatant problems with that approach. So first of all, people are saying, oh, what's the big deal? It's just $7 per person. Seven bucks per person is $35 million. It's wasteful if you can't give me a good justification for why that taxpayer money should be spent on that. So what was that seven, and it's, by the way, we'll talk about this in a minute, it's not actually $7 per person at all when you think about it. But for what exactly? So first of all, the majority of people wanted this vaccine. This was not something that you had to sell to people. They wanted it. They were literally just waiting to be told in the media when and where it would become available. People wanted the product. Secondly, the Prime Minister, the government, had its 1pm daily press conference running through most of this. So they've got an opportunity every single day to plug, without paying a cent, or paying very little, to plug and remind people about the vaccine and its availability and where to get it and how to get it and answer questions about it even. Number three, the media were running vaccine campaigns left, right and centre. All of them were. Remember the Herald? The Herald was running a let's get to 90% campaign, remember? I talked about that on a previous episode. The media were all over this. And number four, you had people who were mandated, who were forced to get this vaccine. And despite all that, you still needed to spend $35 million in less than a year on advertising? To do what exactly? Now, I get it. Some advertising spend would make sense, but $35 million? When you've got all of those other options open to you, you've got a captive audience of people who want the darn thing. And by the way, it's not, it's not $7 per person. It's about 10 times that when you think about the fact that it was really only 10% of the population that you actually needed to advertise to. Because according to previous experiences with vaccination campaigns in New Zealand, we get about 90% uptake on a normal vaccine campaign anyway. So it's really only the 10%. The undecideds, the people who are hard to get to, that's the group you need to get to. What was actually done to target that group? Nothing. They were further alienated, in fact, by the behaviour of this government. They just made everything worse. 
Can I humbly suggest to you that one thing I think is, is also happening here is it's not just the collapse of mandates and segregation that's collapsing. I think Ardern's brand is now collapsing as well with this. The, the, the gimmick is over. The grift is over. Playing the saviour, it's, it's over now because it's apparent we don't need a saviour. We never did. Well, not that saviour anyway. <laughs> but we never did. But it's apparent now that we never did. Oh, we can actually, oh, wow, we can stand on our own two feet. We can navigate this as normal human beings again. So her star is collapsing, and we know what collapsing stars do. They form black holes. Now, there's no doubt that they will try and reinvent Ardern now. There will be a reinvention PR campaign trying to figure out, well, what's the next version of Ardern? How do we reinvent her and recreate her and create a new image of her? What does it look like? I'm not surprised to see in the paper today Hints at a possible wedding. Back on the table again. But yeah, it's the end, right? It's the end. Last but not least, as if to, as I said, to really, really throw salt into this wound. You may not have seen this, but I, I, I couldn't believe when I read this article. At first I thought it was talking about wasted COVID-19 vaccines which is one of the reasons why I think the government's been so hot on trying to get people boosted and it pushed everything it could to the last minute to try and get people more, more vaccines in their arms before they realised, oh, in actual fact, it's not really doing lots for most people. So, you know, they didn't want to waste lots of product they paid for. So I thought this was an article about wasted COVID vaccines, but then I reread it. Have a listen to this article. Experts warn of new epidemics as 320,000 MMR vaccines worth $8 million go to waste and infant immunisation rates plummet. This is from the New Zealand Herald and this was published on the 19th of March and this I think deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. Experts warn we are sitting ducks for multiple infectious outbreaks as 320,000 measles vaccines as part of a major immunisation campaign go to waste alongside concerningly low infant vaccination rates. In July 2020, off the back of a devastating measles outbreak that saw 800 people hospitalised, the government launched a targeted immunisation catch-up campaign to reach 300,000 unvaccinated 15 to 30-year-olds. And by the way, I went, actually went and got a booster uh, that during that um, was it 2018 or 2019 when the problem hit because I was travelling between Auckland and New Zealand, uh, Auckland and New Zealand, between Auckland, maybe it sort of feels that way at times, isn't it? Auckland and the rest of New Zealand, between Auckland and uh, home, uh, quite a bit through that period and uh, and in both places it was an issue. And so um, I wanted to, you know, make sure that I was prepped and, and ready. So I went and got my MMR booster. There were about 400,000 MMR vaccines made available and 40 million allocated for the rollout. This was later revised to 26 million. The rollout was hampered by the COVID-19 response. Not COVID-19, but the response. And in March last year, district health boards were directed to refocus on the pandemic and other areas. It was supposed to resume in November. Figures from Health Minister Andrew Little's office provided to National Party Health spokesman Dr Shane Retty showed just over 20,000 of those vaccines had been administered by the time the rollout was paused. Nearly 150,000 unused doses expired at the end of February and have already been destroyed 
Another nearly 170,000 doses were unused and due to expire at the end of March and were being destroyed. The Ministry of Health has confirmed the wasted vaccines were worth about $8 million. National vaccination rates have fallen in the past few years, with the declines particularly sharp among Māori and Pacific children. In July uh, last year, ministry officials warned the health minister in a confidential briefing immunisation rates for Māori children and most district health boards were below the level of 85% required to achieve herd immunity. We are sitting ducks for multiple infectious outbreaks because we have serious immunity gaps in infants that are unprecedented and declining, Patusis Harris said. So that's um, uh, the lady who's from um, Auckland University, the expert in um, vaccines. And it is our Māori and Pacifica communities who will be most vulnerable. This is, uh, this is what happens, folks, when you have a fixation on only one issue and you start acting as if everything else can suddenly go on hold. Well, it can't, and it shouldn't have. And you spend 35 million bucks, waste 35 million bucks, can I humbly suggest, or at least probably, I, I reckon, maybe 30 million on that advertising campaign, selling, really, I think, you're not selling the vaccine, you're selling a political idea about the vaccine. And that political idea is that Labour has saved the world, that the government has saved us. It's, I think that's really what was being sold. And, and, and instead what's happening is in the background, actual serious healthcare issues, other healthcare issues, are not being tended to because the fixation is only on this one thing. And then other things are going by the by side, uh, by the wayside. And what's going to happen now? We're going to end up with a situation where there's going to be serious harms, possibly even deaths, I think, that will result as a result of all of this. Got nothing to do with COVID. It's the response. Oh, but we had to, you don't understand. We had to, COVID was so serious. No, no, no. No, you, you fixated on COVID. You made it this thing, the zero COVID thing. There's just to me, there's no getting away from that. This this isn't a this is a reminder that human health is about more than just one illness. Even when there's a big predominant pandemic going on, it's about more than that. It's got to be, otherwise you're in trouble. But we made it about one thing only. Eight million bucks wasted of actual product. And you know what else? This is the other thing that I think really matters here, because of the way they conducted themselves with COVID. And the segregation and the mandates and the ostracization and the serious social harms and distrust that they created, that will now carry over into other important vaccination campaigns as well. And I guarantee you they are going to struggle. They are going to have to now waste even more money trying to come up with campaigns that will actually restore and regain whatever public trust they can out of this because they know I guarantee you there'll be people on the inside who'll be sweating about this. They will know that what happened with COVID and mandates and segregation has done untold harm to trust in the healthcare establishment and their ability in these other areas to bring those communities back with them. It's pretty serious. As I said, we are still in a state of mass hysteria. We're slowly coming out of it, but we're on the tail end of it. We're still in it, though. It's clear to me. Just to finish with one thing that I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about. I said this to my wife the other day when I heard, uh, first of all, the Prime Minister's press conference where she announces and spends all that time at the beginning talking herself up, big, big upping herself, as the kids say, the cool kids say. 
taking us on a journey about the history of COVID and staving off the announcement for another couple of days so she could maximise the anniversary, right, the two-year anniversary for her own political gain. And as we're being subjected to this madness, all wrapped in this political speak about how, you know, aren't we amazing? Look, we've saved you. We're your saviors. Oh, and by the way, we're getting rid of the mandates. And here's some of those details. And then we had the slew of experts talking about it afterwards. I said to my wife, all I can think about is that quote from the movie Gladiator, where Maximus is talking to the Emperor Commodus and he says, the time for honouring yourself will soon be at an end, Emperor. The time for honouring yourself will soon be at an end, Emperor. It's all I could think of. And I had a, a, a little smile on the inside about that fact. Because this is long overdue. But sadly, as I said, there is a lot of work to be done. There's some very serious broken trust, some wounding. There's some people who are still caught in the psychology of this fear and it's going to take them a while yet to get out of it. This should have never happened. This policy was immoral and it was harmful and now we are going to see some of those harms playing out. All I can say though is thank goodness, thank goodness that the initial stages, the beginning of the end has started. Thank you for tuning in. It's been awesome to be back with you again. Great to be on the tail end of the COVID. A huge thank you to all of you, our patrons. You guys are awesome. It's thanks to you that we can keep producing these episodes. As I said earlier, I'll be back later this week with a free-to-air episode dedicated solely to the question of, of my COVID experience, and I'll share a bit more about that. You guys are awesome. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, live by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies, and I will see you next time on The Dispatches. 